trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for wrong thinkers, new and old. We'll explain more about that a little bit later in the hour. Right now, one of my favorite wrong thinkers, Eric Peters from epautos.com joins me. Hi, Eric. Hey, Brian. Can you admit, can you believe that I'm still on my feet? Somehow the Rona hasn't killed me yet. It is amazing. And especially given your, uh, you know, aversion to uh, to face masks, well, I, I can't believe that, that we haven't held your funeral long ago. I haven't put a diaper on my face once, and yet I haven't so much as gotten a cough. How dare you defy <laughs> the official narrative, Eric? <laughs> and yet, you know, the troubling thing to me, at least in my area, is that um, the wearing of the holy rag appears to be waxing. Uh, despite the the now reporting of the fact that the cases the cases are are down by about half uh, coincidentally after the anointing of the president selected Joe Biden, yeah, it was uh, isn't it great how that worked out for everyone? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think I, it, this is a psychologically interesting dynamic. I think people have been habituated to it for so long now. What is it about six months, eight months that uh, the majority of the country has been made to wear the holy rag, but it's circular. Now I think these people think, well, the cases are down, therefore the rags work, therefore let's keep wearing the rags. Yeah, I've seen the graphs, and, and the places that mandate and strictly enforce use of face masks as well as other you know, lockdown um, policies, their, their graph, the, the progression of the disease and the cases, looks exactly like the places that have done none of that. Well, yeah, sure. And then there's the cognitively dissonant uh, comparison of, say, the state of Florida versus, say, the state of California. Right. In Florida, as you know, uh, Governor DeSantis has taken the teeth out of the diapering mandates by forbidding via executive order that uh, anybody be fined or uh, otherwise persecuted for not wearing the face diaper. And the, uh, the case rate, the fatality rate, all of those things are lower in Florida than they are in the places with the most severe face diapering requirements and lockdowns. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells me there are some questions that people ought to be asking. And yet, very few people will ask that. And that's, that's actually kind of where yep. I'd like to begin today um, yep. to talk about why is it, Eric, that people choose not to see what is right before them? I think there are a variety of reasons, and I think probably the most obvious is that it's the path of least resistance. People don't want to be heterodox. They want to be accepted. It's the, it's the elementary and junior high school psychology extrapolated to adult society. Now, remember when we were kids and, you know, you wanted to wear the right clothes, have the right haircut, sure. all of those things, like the right music because you were terrified of being ostracized. You didn't want the, uh, the cool kids to think that you weren't cool. That, that dynamic now is playing out in the adult world. So uh, everybody's got their holy rag on, so you must wear your holy rag. You don't want to be one of those, those people who you know, doesn't believe in the narrative, isn't part of the faith, the new, the new religion. And then you salt into the mix the, the pressure that's applied to people. You know, I've told you, and I've talked about this on other radio programs, 
um, about this very depressing thing I've encountered on a number of occasions of, of women and older people telling me they don't want to wear the things, but they're afraid not to wear them because they're afraid of being accosted and confronted. I'm a man and I'm a pretty large man, so people generally leave me alone. But other people who look like they're in a vulnerable position are basically open season targets uh, of these weaponized hypochondriacs and sickness psychosis people. And it's, you know, it's a really disturbing, disturbing phenomenon. I had a chance to uh, travel this last weekend, went, to, went up to visit some friends in Idaho and ended up attending church with, uh, with my in-laws. And Eric, I, I'll tell you, where I live, going to church, typically I'm the only person or one of the only people, maybe there's two or three people in, in the entire congregation, not masked, but uh, yep. this little rural community, not only was it the largest church congregation that I have seen or been a part of in, in more than a year now, um, but it was also, there was at least, I would say, 30, 40% of the people just simply didn't wear masks. And here's the best part. Everybody was chill. I visited, yep. I visited a restaurant that had a sign on their door, and they said, we are a mask-neutral establishment. And yep. so I, I first yep. thing I said, what does that mean? And the waitress said, it just means if you want to wear a mask, wear one. If you don't want to wear one, don't. But again, Absolutely. they were very chill about it, and it worked. Sure it works, and that's reasonable. I have no issue as such with anybody who wants to wear a mask, or for that matter, who wants to cut a watermelon in half and hollow it out and put that on their head and walk around with it. They have every right to do that. I'm all for being eccentric. I'm an eccentric guy. I, I've got a lost jumpsuit in my closet. You know, I put that on for my girlfriend for laughs every once in a while. It's okay. You know, as long as I don't expect other people to walk around with a halved watermelon on their heads wearing a lost jumpsuit. And really, that's what it comes down to. America should be all about different strokes for different folks, but not about the imposition of whatever your fears are, uh, whatever your neuroses are on other people. No, I, I'm with you there. And that's, that's the place where I have been trying, and I know you've been trying to wake people up and say, look, it's okay to believe what you want to believe, and as long as your behavior is peaceful, hey, more power to you. But when you start forcing it on other people, you're crossing a line, and that's where, where people like you and I are going to push back, not because we want to be rude or because we're just contrary individuals, but because we understand there's something more at stake here than simply safety. Yeah, well, you know, you bring up the church thing, and I'd like to get back to that, because we have been characterized as, as being not caring, as being selfish for insisting that we have the right to decide for ourselves whether to put on this, uh, this holy vestment, this holy rag, as I like to style it. But it's exactly the opposite. It is not caring to deny reality and to pretend that people who have, frankly, got a mental problem, who have hypochondria, look up what the definition of hypochondria is, to sort of pretend that that's normal to normalize this, this neuroses that has been imposed on the country, that, that that's okay, that it's reasonable to quake in fear of a virus that doesn't kill 99.8% of the people and is turning the entire country into a madhouse, that that's okay and legitimate. No, it's exactly the opposite. And we are being kind and we're being caring toward everybody by trying to dispel this hypochondria that's being imposed on the country. In your essay, Why Can't the Sheep See, you reference mm -hmm. something called Savonarola Syndrome. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, Savonarola was a, um, a fervid, frantic medieval cleric who uh, was one of those guys who urged the people who didn't agree with his particular point of view be burned at the stake. Uh, had absolutely no tolerance for what he considered to be heresy. 
And that's sort of what we're seeing now being erected in this country. If you disbelieve uh, in the holy religion of the face diaper um, per Pope Fauci the 16th, um, you are cast out. You are a heretic. And we're really not that far away from actually burning people at the stake. You and I were talking a little bit off the air about this video that's gone viral on YouTube of a scene at Trader Joe's where oh, yeah. uh, people came and tried to shop without wearing the holy rag. And they were all but nailed to the cross for just trying to buy some food by the employees of the store. One of the most telling things about that video is how not only how the employees are, are you know surrounding them, yelling at them, shoving at them, but as they go to pay for their merchandise, that's which is what they were there to do. They were there to shop. The employees are literally ripping it out of their hands, throwing it across the store. Get out yeah. of here. Well, I left my money right there. Then pick your money up. I'm not going to sell it to you. If you leave with that, you're, you're uh, shoplifting. It's like, holy cow. Talk about well, yeah, confrontation. You know, we, have to be careful about, we have to be careful about using words um, sometimes, but I think in this context, it's, it's, I think, legitimate to use the words dirty Jew. You know, what, what's happening is people are being marginalized and turned into pariahs. And when you turn people into dirty pariahs, um, you legitimize assaulting them, as we see in the case of this Trader Joe's thing. It really wouldn't have taken much more for those clerks to bring out baseball bats and start chasing those people and beating them up in the street because it is being imparted to the populace that it's okay to do that. These people who won't wear the mask, they're dangerous. They're, you know, they're putting everybody at risk. They have to be stopped by any means necessary. The parallel with what happened to people in Germany during the, during the, the Nazi period is exactly apt. People were set aside. They were targeted. They were marginalized. It was made okay to make fun of them, to call them names, and you know, at the end of the day, ultimately, to put them in boxcars and send them off for what the Germans called special handling. I actually read a tweet yesterday from someone who was on a plane who said, I'm not kidding, uh, a man sitting a couple of seats over pulled his mask down, was actively taking a drink, and the person by him reached over, tapped his shoulder, and said, hey, would you put your mask back on over your nose? Your convenience is not more important than my safety. And her complaint right. was she said, I have to sit next to this cretin for the next two hours. That's right. This dangerous cretin. These people have, have been uh, terrorized to the point where, 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 such that when they see somebody else showing their face, they regard that person in their own minds. They believe this as a mortal threat to their safety. And what happens when you believe that someone else is a mortal threat to your safety, somebody who's going to kill you just by their physical presence? Doesn't that imply that you have a right to defend yourself by practically any means necessary? Without a doubt. Hold that thought. Eric Peters is my guest from epautos.com. We've got to take a very quick break. We'll be back on The Brian Hyde Show right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. And Eric, I love when we get together uh, on a weekly basis and we talk current events. I always feel like I'm a little bit more fortified after our discussion to go <laughs> forth and, and, and boldly uh, defend freedom. Well, you know, we, we actually need to do more of this, and not just you and I, but everybody out there who's listening to this. Uh, I think it's fortifying to know that you're, no, you're not the only person in the country who hasn't lost his mind. Amen. That, you know, that it, that, that's, it's a very psychologically helpful thing to know 
that despite this concerted effort to make it look like everybody's out of their minds, a lot of people have still clung to their sanity somehow. You had, a, by the way, you had a, uh, an essay a couple of days ago that really got my attention. It was called Inflation Wake-Up Call, mm-hmm. and I thought it was one of the best object lessons in how inflation creeps up on us, and most people don't even mm-hmm. notice it. Tell me about the experience you had uh, when, uh, when you and your girlfriend went to McDonald's. Well, yeah, it was a personal wake-up call for me, and it was akin to, you've heard this, you know, the example of, well, if you want to boil a frog, boil him slowly so he doesn't notice that the water temperature is increasing until it's too late. Well, in this case, it was me, me the frog, being thrown into the already boiling pot of water. Um, I had not been to McDonald's in probably 12 years. I'm just not a big fan of their food or their politics. But at any rate, we got to talking about fast food, and long story short, we decided to go get a couple of burgers and see what it was like. So we did just that. I got a quarter pounder with cheese uh, and a Big Mac, and she got a Big Mac, and then we got one large fry, no drinks, to share between us. And I didn't even look at the price. I just assumed it was going to be about, you know, nine or ten bucks. I get to the window, and it's like $17 for that, that, that pathetic, meager meal at McDonald's. Wow. Yeah. And then I decided to look into, into it a little bit and look at the, the inflation of the cost of these things. And back in 2000, a quarter pounder with cheese was $2.34. It is currently $4 plus tax for a quarter pounder with cheese. And in some parts of the country, like California, it's even more than that. And it's, it's an indicator, a real-world indicator of how much more expensive things have gotten. And I'm sure everybody listening to this program right now is well aware of that. You go to the grocery store, a pound of ground beef now is well over $4. And there's another aspect to it. They without raising prices, will simply reduce the portion size. Oh, yeah. I, I bought a box of Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits the other day, and I opened them, and they were like mini biscuits. They looked to be about a, a, maybe two-thirds the size of what Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits used to be, but the price is just the same. So, boy, I feel like I'm still getting the same product. My kids probably hate grocery shopping with me because Dad pulls the bacon index out of his ear every time we walk by, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'll show him. Look, okay, remember what the price of bacon was last time we came through, and it was, you know, $2.20 or mm-hmm. uh, two fifty for a pound? All right, we're paying $3 now for this package of bacon, but look at that. That's 12 ounces, not 16. They've reduced yeah. it by 25%. That's right. And it's really upticked um, over the last, I don't know, two or three years or so, very noticeably. So if you're paying attention to it, they're very clever in terms of disguising it and um, you know, making, making it such that you can kind of gloss it over. But when to get back to McDonald's, when two people can't eat for uh, really under $20, can you imagine it costs probably $40, $50 to run through that drive-thru and get uh, a bag of fast food at McDonald's for a family of four? So what are, what are some of the ways that people can hedge against inflation? I know people aren't aware of it because it's, it's quietly working in the background, and the yeah. the, per, the perception of those prices going up is, well, it's almost imperceptible, as you saw with the sticker yeah. shock when they presented you with the, the bill for, okay, it's going to cost you this much. Yep. What, what could we do to protect ourselves, protect our money, and protect our pocketbooks against uh, the, the, the ravages of inflation? Well, I think there's two things. The first is, to the extent that it's feasible, uh, live beneath your means. Many people have gotten into the habit of living above their means. They buy more house than they need and can afford. They buy more car than they need and can afford, uh, and so on and so on. If you can figure out a way to spend less, obviously you'll have more, and that will improve your financial position. Another thing to do with regard to food in particular 
is to grow your own if possible. And most people are in a position to do this. If you have a single-family home and even in an apartment, there's no reason that you can't grow some vegetables, for example. Uh, I have chickens, and my seven hens give me seven to eight eggs every day basically for free because the birds forage in the yard, and you know, I hardly have, it hardly costs me anything to keep them. Um, I also have a garden, and the garden provides food, and that helps to offset some of the costs um, that you force to buy or force to force to pay when you when you go to buy food at a supermarket. I think that's good advice. I mean, um, I, I'd see people, you know, looking at precious metals, looking at uh, you know cryptocurrency as as a means to do mm-hmm. it. I'm much more of the mindset that. Uh, the more tangible things you can have your hands on, the more protected you are against inflation. And that could be things that you could barter, you know, um, mm-hmm. if, if the situation came to that. I'm kind of leery about uh, the government's interest in every dime that I make and every dime that I spend. Somehow that strikes me as unhealthy. Well, of course it's unhealthy. And, and right now is a terrible time to buy silver and gold. The prices of both have shot through the roof. Uh, you might have been well advised to buy that stuff six months ago or a year ago. Now you don't buy high, you buy low when possible. But I, I take your point, and I think to the degree that you can do it, to be as as independent and decentralized from all of these very complex controlling corporatist government structures uh, that leave you at their mercy, the better. If if you can find a way to to create your own food, your own your own your own eggs, your own meat, your own dairy, barter with people that you know for things of value. That's the key, I think, to separating yourself from some of this this scary and tyrannical stuff that's being imposed on us. Yep. And and I think uh, having some basic economic uh, uh, savvy, and I, I don't mean you have to go and study and become an economist mm-hmm. and attend, you know, the Mises Circle or whatever. You can if you want. Mm-hmm. You probably meet some great people in the process. But just a simple understanding of how basic economics work and the difference between a free market and a, a government-managed market. Sure, and just common sense stuff. You know, I, I've made it my policy since I was a young man to restrict what I buy to what I can afford. You know, I'd, I'd like to have um, a new recliner, for example, but I'm not going to buy myself a recliner until I can afford to pay cash for it. I'm not going to put it on the card. I never put anything on the card. The card's for emergencies, and thank God so far uh, such emergencies haven't come down the pike. Um, and, and because of my frugality, I'm in a position that if the refrigerator, say, stops working, I can afford to go get another refrigerator without putting it on the card. And I, you know, most Americans used to live that way at one time, but something changed over the course of the last 40 or so years where debt became normalized and where there's, there's this social pressure to buy into this lifestyle of, of driving a car that you really can't afford, of buying a house you really can't afford that's probably too big a house relative to what your budget is, and so on. And all of these things leave us at the mercy of the people who who own our debt, and that's a bad thing. Okay. Eric, we're down to the last minute and a half or so. Um, let's take a moment here to uh, talk a little bit about your website, epautos.com, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you can even show some love to your sponsors if you'd like. Oh, absolutely. Uh, anybody who's interested in these topics or other topics relating to cars, motorcycles, I just got a new article up about uh, electric motorcycles people might be interested in, um, car maintenance, car buying questions, pretty much the gamut. Anything you'd like to ask or talk about, you can do it there without censorship, uh, without suppression. We're open to all comers. Um, if you need a radar detector, and I believe everybody should have a radar detector who drives, I strongly encourage you to check out Valentine 1. Uh, and I also encourage you, if you care about your car, to use AMS oil lubricants. 
Okay. I would also just like to drop a quick plug here for um, if you really want to learn. I mean, look, there's a lot of name-calling and purse-swinging on social media, like somebody's going to lose an eye kind of purse-swinging. One of the things that I have come to really appreciate about your website, you have extremely well-informed and thought-provoking commenters, and you can learn a lot from the comments that follow many of these articles. Without question, I'm humbled on a daily basis by the erudition, the civility, and the wisdom of these people from all over the country who have taken the time to post their comments on the site. So, yeah, the comment section, I think, is one of the best, uh, best parts of the whole website. And, and some of these people have a very wicked sense of humor, which I love. Yes, they do. Okay, Eric. Yes, they do. And we are up against the clock here, unfortunately, but thank you so much. I look forward to the next time we get to visit. Likewise, Brian. Talk soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am so glad that you could be a part of my audience today. By the way, if you find yourself wondering, okay, what's this whole wrong think thing about... You know, I mean, does that sound rebellious? I know it does to some people, but generally what I'm talking about is just simply independent thought. Thinking clearly and independently, being willing to to think as an individual, to make judgments based on your conscience, rather than simply, you know, acting as part of the collective, losing yourself in the herd. I've also heard this described as hive mind or hive thinking or collective approach, and That's the contrast. It's not Democrat versus Republican, because there are Republican collectivists, just as there are Democrat collectivists. By the way, you'll also find people in in every political party who are very committed to independent thought. Now, just because they're part of a party doesn't mean, you know, they need, need to be shunned or scorned. But gaining that sense of independent thought, it's not as easy as we sometimes think. And a lot of people go along with things that uh, otherwise, they, they on an individual basis, they probably question. But when there's peer pressure, you know, you see your neighbors are doing it. You see, you know, people you go to church with are doing it or, you know, family members do it without question. Sometimes it's just easier to, to go along to get along. So my goal here is not to, to make you feel ashamed or make you feel like, gee, somehow I'm less because I don't do that. But simply to question, why don't we? What is it about the hive mind that uh, that draws so many people in? And why does it work so well? Well, for the answer to that question, I want to turn to uh, the late Joseph Sobrin. And I guess uh, today's the anniversary of Joseph Sobrin's six, uh, 75th birthday. My goodness, he died young. I think he was only 60, maybe, maybe not even quite 60 years old when he passed away. Um, he was such a brilliant thinker. And the thing I love about his writing is he is writing from a conservative point of view, but not necessarily a Republican conservative point of view. In fact, uh, truth be told, at one point he called himself, uh, I think he said uh, he was a reluctant anarchist, which for a very devout Catholic, a guy of, of very deep faith, and uh, you know, I think he, he had a very solid take on the world around him. He just came to the conclusion that, You know, no matter how good I try to tell myself government can be, at some level, it's always going to be 
a source of mischief or even a source of evil. So maybe it's not as radical as it sounds on the on the surface, but when he says, yeah, I, I, I am a reluctant anarchist, he's not a reluctant bomb thrower. He's just someone who realizes as much emphasis as we put on uh, who's going to rule us, very few people stop to ask the question, why do I need a ruler again? You know, so you have that to consider. This is this is an essay that he wrote back in June of 1999. It's called The Hive. And keeping in mind that this was written, you know, 30 years ago. No, I'm sorry, 22 years ago. Hello. He says, 20 years ago, he was struck by the way various sorts of political progressives, communists, socialists, liberals, civil libertarians, moderates, pragmatists, all spontaneously cooperated with each other. Now, he says, it wasn't a conspiracy. There was obviously no central direction, but the pattern was too clear to be denied. He says the word left was a dead metaphor. It said nothing about, uh, it said nothing interesting about the people it referred to. So he says, I used the metaphor of an insect hive, which captured the way such people moved in harmony and communicated with each other. Now, hear out his explanation, okay? Because this is not a guy prone to just simply pointing fingers and calling names. He's, he's trying to explain the difference between thinking independently versus the hive mentality. He says, in a beehive, the worker bees have many specialties. The hive is organized around the queen bee, but she doesn't have to give the workers their instructions. The bee that finds pollen returns to the hive and flies in figure eights. This tells the others the direction and distance of the pollen, and they go get it. And, of course, the bees need no orders to attack an enemy. Members of the progressive hive likewise act on their own instincts and have their own code of communication. They feel free, but they are also predictable. Now, he says liberals laugh at conspiracy theories that assume that because there's a pattern, there must be some central control. But the fact that there is no central control doesn't mean that there is no pattern. He says, my hive metaphor was enriched in an essay by Igor Sharefovich, Socialism in Our Past and Future, in Solzhenitsyn's collection of dissident writings from Under the Rubble. Sharefovich argues that socialism is not just a modern phenomenon, but a perennial problem of decadent societies. In the name of equality, it tries to destroy the family, private property, and religion, institutions that prevent the state from monopolizing loyalty, wealth, and authority. Since ancient times, socialists, under whatever labels, have favored sexual license, the community of wives, free love, sexual freedom, etc. And by breaking down bonds of kinship, sexual anarchy reduces the individual to a mere unit of the state. He says, I saw immediately what uh, Shafarovich, sorry, I've been saying his name wrong, Shafarovich meant. His words applied not only to doctrinaire socialists and overt communists, but to all those liberals whose efforts constantly, though implicitly, tend toward a socialist order. Liberalism, he says, I saw was the retail version of the society in which communism was the wholesale version. Liberals don't speak or think as a rule of outright revolution. They move one step at a time, always edging toward the socialist model of an egalitarian centralized state, always nibbling at the family in the name of sexual freedom, property rights in the name of social justice, and religion in the name of separation of church and state. Like bees, they swarm against enemies or perceived threats to their hive. Joe McCarthy, Pope John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and Kenneth Starr are just a few of the many targets of hive attacks over the years. He says the hive especially hates anti-communism and traditional Christianity. 
Though only a few bees espouse communism, all of them feel at least some sympathy for it. Like American liberals, Soviet communism strove to build a new society, that is to destroy all tradition. Liberalism's ad hoc style is only superficially different from that of communism. At the bottom, it wants the same things without being fully aware of it. So, civil rights, feminism, environmentalism, national health care, gun control, and abortion on demand may not seem intrinsically related, but they all extend the authority and power of the centralized state over private relations. And the hive intuits this with almost infallible accuracy, so the liberal bees support and promote such causes at every turn. He says, liberalism, unlike communism, adopts the pose of pragmatism, scorning ideology so liberal bees consistently pretend that they favor this or that measure for purely practical reasons. But Sobrand says the pattern is clear. What they really favor is a state that's both limitless and godless. Now, the hive has had to make concessions to reality. Communism has collapsed. The market has shown that it will assert itself against any attempt to control it from above. But since liberals profess to be non-ideological, they have been able to adapt to these facts of life, giving lip service to the free market. Yet they continue to favor more centralized government, more state economic power, higher taxes and limitations on property rights whenever possible. Joseph Sobrand says, by using pragmatic language for its agenda, the hive misleads the general public about its ultimate goals. It gains power as ordinary people adopt its language without grasping the implications. After all, who could oppose such worthy causes as civil rights, a woman's right to choose, protecting our children, and saving the environment? The news media use the buzzwords of the hive so habitually that they become virtual organs of the hive. He says the typical bee isn't a fanatical Marxist-Leninist, it's Dan Rather or Katie Couric. Now, keeping in mind this thing was written almost 23 years ago, isn't that uh, perceptive? This is not to say, therefore, you know, if you know anybody who leans this way, you should be, you know, solidly against them. But just just understand that uh, there are a lot of people who get pulled into that thinking that, well, if we just had a little more control, if we just could, could get government on top of this, everything would be cool. And I think they probably do it with the best of intentions, but also do it with a blind spot to historically, where has that greater control or that greater uh, uh centralization of power led societies, nations, even communities? And the answer is it almost always leads to a place where individual freedom is squelched, property rights are denied, freedom of conscience is outlawed, and misery becomes the norm. It's interesting to me, too, just to see the differences. You know, right now, um, especially among uh, a lot of uh, younger people, to, to hear talk about liberalism, they are talking about classical liberalism. It's not being said with the liberals, you know, kind of bent that, uh, that so many conservatives have spoken over the years. That definition seems to be falling by the wayside. Funny how words change in just, just a little over 20 years' time. And I'll confess, I, I miss Joe Sobrand's writings. I miss his insights so deeply just because the man had... This, this uncanny knack of looking at things from just a slightly different angle. And in every single one of his essays, guaranteed you are going to find at least one just gleaming nugget of truth. By the way, I'll have a link to this one in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. 
back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Do want to mention that Rio del Sion Home Lots is one of our fine sponsors, along with Monticello College and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you are thinking about moving to Utah, particularly if uh, you are relocating to southern Utah, it would be worth your time to go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and click on the link under sponsors that says Rio del Sion Home Lots. It'll take you on a nice little virtual tour. It will show you some of the most beautiful properties that are being built on right now just outside of Zion National Park. If you want to Google Zion National Park, all I can say is have a chair handy because it's beautiful. It'll, it'll set you right back in your seat. And by the way, when you talk to my friends at Rio del Sion Home Lots, be sure to tell them thank you for sponsoring this program because I deeply appreciate it. So once we're on the path for thinking for ourselves, which is uh, largely one of my major goals is just, it's not to make you think for yourself, but to invite you to think for yourself. And once you start doing it, if you're like me, you're going to feel a duty to share what you know with others who are searching. Now, look, not everybody's looking. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave, it would be worth Googling it, take a look at it, maybe have a couple of friends look at it, and then discuss it amongst yourselves. In a nutshell, Plato describes how these prisoners are being held in a cave where everything they perceive about reality is flickering images on the wall. Does that, by the way, ring kind of true to how, how we are held captive to what we think is reality? Flickering images on a flat screen on our wall. Interesting. And some of those prisoners make their way out of the cave to the sunlight where they encounter brighter light and a more beautiful and expansive world than anything they've ever known before. And so they go back into the cave to help lead others to that sunlight. And what do you suppose the reaction is? A lot of them are like, no, I'm comfortable. Don't, don't move me. Don't touch me. Don't shake me out of what I think is the only way that things can be. But would you agree that once you have seen that light, you have a duty at least to help the ones who are trying to find their way out of the cave and, and upward toward the sunlight? I think that's a duty that falls to each one of us. And, and I especially think it happens to fall upon those of us who are teaching or raising kids. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a marvelous piece on arming children for the battle of prepackaged thinking. Yes, I will include this in the show notes. Her essay says, I'm so glad to be back in the classroom, a young high school student told her the other day. And Annie says the student's enthusiasm is understandable. As one of the first students to get back to some form of normalcy in public schooling, she's probably the envy of many others who want to be in person with their friends and teachers, even if their faces are obscured by masks. Yet as the students begin to head back to in-person school, a narrative is quickly emerging that goes something like this. Kids are behind. We need drastic measures to catch them up. Now, the first part is certainly true, says Annie Holmquist, and was so even before the pandemic, based on the proficiency scores reported by the nation's report card. The second part also has some truth to it, but the proposed solutions are, in essence, more time spent in woke 
or politically correct classrooms. At least if a recent article by Anya Kamenitz from NPR is anything to judge by. Summer school is the number one recommendation on the list which Kamenitz puts forth. She also mentions tutoring, but then goes on to name safer and more equitable schools as her third recommendation. Now, reading between the lines, Annie Holmquist says this seems to be a code word for further governmental involvement in the everyday lives of families and children, including support for mental health and needed accommodations and strong relationships with caring adults. Students' commandments reports are also asking for different content in the classroom, a curricula focused on empathy and celebrating diversity, exposing rather the violent history of America. Wow! Forget about foreign language immersion programs. This is woke immersion at its finest, she says. Unfortunately, woke immersion programs have been on the rise for years. The effort to drive Shakespeare, long the gold standard of English literature, from the classroom is an example of this. Shakespeare represents white supremacy and a westocentric view of the world. Teachers who dare to teach the bard do so through a woke lens of Marxist theory and toxic masculinity analysis. By the way, even the area of mathematics is not safe from woke culture. Recent training materials instruct teachers in ways to promote anti-racism and create a collective approach to dismantling white supremacy. Said white supremacy shows up in math classrooms, the materials explain, when the focus is on getting the right answer, or when teachers treat mistakes as problems because such actions signal perfectionism and paternalism. This hits home because my wife is a math teacher. (laughs) Even she's like, what? (laughs) Math is racist? Great. Showing your work is racist? Oh, boy. Annie Holmquist says schools may say they're helping kids catch up, but really they're just instilling them with a bunch of prepackaged thoughts. And these prepackaged thoughts were addressed by John Taylor Gatto in an essay titled Confederacy of Dunces. Dunces, Gatto wrote, are what schools produce best and on purpose. They are the victims of the non-thought of second-hand ideas who well know the opinions of Time Magazine and CBS, the New York Times, and the President. They're selective in which pre-thought thoughts, which received opinions they take to heart. Gatto goes on to say, quote, mass dumbness is vital to modern society. The dumb person is wonderfully flexible clay for psychological shaping by market research, government policymakers, public opinion leaders, and any other interest group. The more pre-thought thoughts a person has memorized, the easier it is to predict what choices he or she will make. What dumb people cannot do is think for themselves or ever be alone for very long without feeling crazy. That's the whole point of national forced schooling. We aren't supposed to be able to think for ourselves because independent thinking gets in the way of professional thinking, which is believed to follow the rules of scientific precision. End quote. Annie Holmquist asks, what can parents do to make sure their children are not fed prepackaged woke talking points? Gatto provides wise advice to parents of all stripes, whether their children are in private or public schools or are homeschooled. Number one, she says, teach practical skills. Students have no idea how their own part fits into the whole, Gatto says, teaching them practical skills such as gardening and carpentry, even the basics of creating one's own entertainment, will help students understand how the world works. This, in turn, will make them far less susceptible to those who try to fill their minds with prepackaged woke thoughts. Secondly, provide real books. When today's schools assign books, they often assign them with reading comprehension guides. Unfortunately, these prepackaged questions don't help children think outside the box, nor do they encourage an interest in reading. On the other hand, giving a child a book to read for fun, 
and having him answer the questions and direct the conversation will expand his mind and foster an interest in reading rather than killing it. Books that show you the best questions to ask aren't just stupid, they hurt the... Books that show you the best questions to ask aren't just stupid, Gatto writes, they hurt the intellect under the guise of helping it, just as standardized tests do. All right, number three, evaluate experts. In this case, Annie Holmquist says it's very useful to some groups that children are trained to be dependent on experts to react to titles instead of judging the real men and women who hide behind the, the titles, cautions Gatto. To avoid this, parents should teach their children to evaluate the experts around them. Does a certain expert have good character? Where does he get his information? What books and other experts does she readily appeal to? And in doing so, children will be more likely to recognize and reject propaganda. And he says, the battle for hearts, minds, and souls of our children is only intensifying, making sure that your child is equipped with tools to engage in the battle against prepackaged thoughts is the first step toward ensuring they won't become another woke automaton. That is brilliant. And, and I agree. And, I, you know, I mean, for, for some people, it, it might seem like this is really harsh, you know, to, to be saying things like this. But, um, look, the, the battle for your own mind hopefully you see as a very real thing. Every time you turn on the television, every time you read an article, I hope you're at least sensing, hey, someone is trying to win my allegiance. And you have to question, you know, does it measure up? What's, what are the purposes? Why are they doing what they're doing? By the way, one final note here. Um, I will have a link to Annie's article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'm also including a link to Paul Rosenberg's latest essay on logical fallacies. This time he talks about the appeal to binaries and how to recognize it and counter it in your discussion. Um, This has a lot to do with being offered a decision of, look, you can either have your taxes raised 25% or 30%. Make your choice. And you're being given a binary decision. It's either this or it's that. You're on the horns of a dilemma. What's it going to be? Do I shoot you in the stomach or do I shoot you in the face? So the big question here is, am I allowed to say, well, what if I don't want to be shot at all? What if I don't want my taxes raised at all? If you're not given another decision, well, that's, uh, that's one of those binaries that, uh, sorry, but uh, we're limited only to these flavors. Anyway, it's a great essay. It's worth reading. And I thank you again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. Please visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a time to drop a note. Take the time to drop a note to my sponsors. Tell them thank you for sponsoring the show. Subscribe to the podcast. Maybe consider becoming a patron. This is the Brian Hyde Show.